Today's lecture will be given by Professor Michael Oppenheimer of the Department of Geosciences and uh, the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, for those of you who have not uh, attended these lectures in the past, uh, they were created uh, almost nine years ago now uh, to provide all of us who live and work in the Princeton community with an opportunity to hear lectures from our own scholars and scientists and engineers. Uh, it is often the case that we bring uh, faculty from all over the world to come and give colloquia here at Princeton. And we benefit uh, from hearing those individuals, but, but it was rare when we had opportunities to hear from our own very distinguished faculty. So this lecture series was created in honor of our faculty. Uh, today's lecture is obviously a very timely one, and I think that reflects uh, the number of you who've come out to hear Professor Oppenheimer. But to introduce him, we have a former President's Distinguished Lecturer from uh, five or six, Bess and I were trying to remember, five or six years ago, uh, Bess Ward, uh, the Chair of uh, Geosciences and the William Sinclair Professor of Geosciences gave what for me was an absolutely unforgettable lecture uh, about um, uh, the, the, the behavior of water masses in Antarctica and, uh, and was for me a model of how these lectures can communicate extremely complex material in ways that are accessible to general audiences. And I know, having heard uh, today's lecturers, that he has that same uh, remarkable capacity. Uh, so I'm going to ask Bess, who is the Chair of Geosciences, to introduce Michael Oppenheimer. So Michael wears many hats on campus, as you realize, and at least one of them, part of the time, at least says geosciences on it. So that's why I have the pleasure of introducing him. Um, and the first paragraph is all about the other labels. Uh, because I want everyone to be sure that they get to be to share in the, the pride. So I'm pleased to introduce Michael Oppenheimer, the Albert B. Milbank Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School and the Department of Geosciences at Princeton University. He's the director of the program in science, technology, and environmental policy. That's the STEP program at the Woodrow Wilson School. And he's a faculty associate of the Atmospheric and Ocean Sciences Program, the Princeton Environmental Institute, and the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. That's several hats. He's also a visiting professor of, the law, of law at the NYU School of Law and a science advisor for environmental defense. I don't know how he gets it all done. Michael's been involved in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as the IPCC, since before it even existed. He was a member of the Toronto Conference in 1988, which was convened by scientists who were concerned about global warming at the time and wanted to get it on the international political agenda. Those efforts eventually led to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. You've noticed by now that if you're going to be in this business, you have to learn a new language, which consists of a lot of acronyms. So that would be the UNFCCC, which was signed at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. And that was in 1992. And that was the predecessor of the Kyoto Protocol, the Bali Roadmap, and most recently, the Copenhagen Accord. And I'm sure Michael has all the t-shirts. Uh, despite the help or the lack thereof from governments, the IPCC has taken center stage in putting science of global warming on government and international agendas. 
And in 2007, the IPCC and Al Gore were recognized for their efforts and accomplishments with the Nobel Peace Prize. Since the inception of the IPCC, Michael has been a reviewer and author at every level and every category in several different parts of the report, including a lead author on the IPCC's fourth assessment report, which is the one that came out in 2007. And he's now a lead coordinating author on a special report about adaptation to climate extremes and disasters. So the work goes on. A little bit of his history after earning a PhD in chemical physics from the University of Chicago. Michael went down the academic science pathway for a while, and I'll just mention two of those places. One of them was Harvard. The other was the University of California at Santa Cruz, <laughs> which is where I came from. <laughs> Had to put that one in. Um, I, in order to figure out what to say about Michael to introduce him, although I've known him for several years and was familiar with his CV, I actually phoned him up and pretended I was doing an interview. And so I asked him why he changed, why he made that switch from, ac from academia to uh, the Environmental Defense Fund and to adv advocacy. And his answer was that while he loved the science, he became disgruntled, and that was his word, with astrophysics, because it did not relate to his growing real wor world concerns. And he wanted to get involved in policy and politics and so he joined Environmental Defense, known as the Environmental Defense Fund at the time, because it was one of a very few advocacy organizations that had science at the heart of its mission. After 21 years hard work at advocacy, fighting night and day for what he believed in, Michael returned to academia with the goal of spending more time in research and getting involved in student advising and teaching, which has its own and different challenges. He continues to act as a scientific advisor to ED, but he claims to have been lucky enough to have his cake and eat it too, both in his position at ED and now at Princeton. And thinking of it that way provoked him to put in a few words of advice for students and uh, young scientists who are contemplating their careers now. That advice was to do what you really want to do, because the world changes, and the careers, careers that you don't even know about that may not even exist now may be yours in the future. So don't be afraid to make choices based on conviction. Michael has worked on acid rain, the Clean Air Act, on ice sheets and sea level, scientific and non-governmental decision making in many aspects of assessing climate change and its impacts, particularly in the sense of evaluating dangerous anthropogenic interference, which is a key phrase in the IPCC reports. So those interferences are things that lead to undesirable outcomes for the planet and the people and the ecosystems on it. He's published over 100 papers and at least one book. He's appeared on numerous television shows and other media outlets obviously keeping very busy as a public intellectual as well as a university professor and international policymaker. We're lucky that he was able to schedule us for the president's lecture series this spring, and he'll talk about the Copenhagen Climate Summit in context, what came before, what happens next. Thank you, Bess. Thank you, Shirley, for those kind introductions. Um, let me just get my wire straight here. Let me just begin by saying that it was an honor to be asked to do this lecture, give this lecture, and that it is a particularly appropriate time to be talking about global warming due to the questions that have been raised recently about the degree to which there actually is a scientific consensus on this issue. Um, accordingly, I'm going to begin my lecture with a brief summary about the current state of scientific knowledge on global warming. Um, which, and that will also serve as a basis for understanding uh, the motivation and the substance of the climate treaty negotiations, uh, which are actually going to be the central theme of my talk. And just to tip you off on the conclusion, 
Um, I don't know what you may have read in um, the press or wherever you read about these things, but my own view is that Copenhagen was neither the seminal world-saving event that the EU in particular had hoped it would be, um, but no, nor was it a failure, uh, which is what many observers and much of the press seems to think at this point. Rather, it was another step, just another step, and I think, though a significant one, in a very, very long road towards what ultimately, I believe, will be a solution to the global warming problem. So let me start by giving you a roadmap to the talk. Um, I'm going to talk first about the scientific basis of the problem, and then address a question that may not even have occurred to you. You may think that, well, of course, there needs to be a treaty on an issue like this, but why? Uh, treaties are difficult to negotiate. They're costly politically, particularly for the United States to be involved in them. Why do we need a treaty? Uh, then I'll move on to discuss uh, what was Copenhagen anyway. Its uh, official name is the 15th Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. I'll, I'll explain very quickly what happened in the first 14 conferences of the parties. Uh, then I'll talk a little bit about what expectations were going into Copenhagen and compare that to what actually was accomplished, in my view, and then think a little bit about what's the way forward from here. So to the science, let's first just summarize quickly what um, global warming is. Global warming is caused by a physical process called the greenhouse effect, where certain gases like carbon dioxide, water vapor, that exist naturally in the atmosphere, um, are transparent to sunlight, which warms the Earth. It's the primary source of energy at the surface. Uh, yet these same gases uh, trap heat that would otherwise radiate back into space. This heat trapping effect is well known. It's been proved physically. It was first identified about 200 years ago by Fourier. And uh, there's no question about it. It's one of the few things about this issue that are absolutely certain. Uh, we know this, for instance, by the way, by comparing uh, Earth's climate to that of Mars and Venus. Contrary to what I thought and what most of you probably thought when you were uh, kids, uh, Venus is much warmer than the Earth, not primarily because it's closer to the sun, but because it has an atmosphere that's dense with greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in particular. And Mars is cooler than the Earth in large measure, not so much because it's further from the uh, Earth, from the sun than the Earth, uh, but because its overall greenhouse gas level is lower. So we know the basic physics of the problem. Then we've gone on to seek information about what the levels of those gases are, have been historically in Earth's history. And this is done by going to the extreme places on Earth, the poles, uh, drilling uh, holes in deep, deeply into the center of the ice and bringing up sections of ice cores. In, those ice cores were formed, of course, from snow falling near the poles, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, now 800,000 years ago. That's the oldest ice that's been fully analyzed. And essentially what happens is as the snowflakes fall, air gets trapped between the points, and the air eventually consolidates into bubbles as the snow consolidates into ice, and in large measure, those air bubbles are an archive of what Earth's atmosphere looked like when the snow fell a long, long time ago. In other words, by and large, the um, atmosphere 
as represented in those bubbles hasn't been transformed uh, over the long period that the bubbles have been in place. So we can extract those bubbles, take them into a laboratory, free them up carefully under uh, clean conditions, and uh, then analyze and get a picture of what the atmosphere looked like. And what we see is this. This is 10,000 years ago. This is actually a relatively young section of an ice core. This is today. We see a relatively constant level of carbon dioxide over that full period, a little bit of increase for reasons we can discuss later if you want to ask me questions. Uh, but then in recent times, a very sharp increase over the last couple of hundred years. And this insert shows the increase. And it's clear uh, that, the, uh, that there has been a sharp upward tick in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The last part of this section is really direct measurements of the atmosphere. Uh, we now uh, have a picture of how the climate of Earth appears to be affected by this buildup of, of uh, greenhouse gases. First of all, I want to say that one of the other things that we know with certainty, and again, there are a few of these, but they're important to keep in mind, is that that buildup of greenhouse gases we saw here is entirely or almost entirely caused by human activity. The, primarily, the burning of fossil fuels and the clearing and burning of forests in the tropics, both of which add copious amounts of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. Those, those additions of carbon dioxide have caused an increase in Earth's greenhouse effect. That increase in Earth's greenhouse effect has already contributed to a significant climate change. There are still discussions going on about exactly how much of the recent climate change is due to human activity. And the, uh, the uh, answer that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change gives is that most of the warming that's been observed over the last 50 years, which is greater than half a degree Celsius, was most likely caused by the buildup of the greenhouse gases due to human activity. So let's look at some of these changes in Earth's climate. This is Earth's temperature starting about 100, 150 years ago, 160 years ago, which is the period over which we have reliable, reliable and relatively comprehensive thermometer readings at the surface. And we see Earth's temperature, again, about 0.75 degrees Celsius warmer now than it was about 100 or 150 years ago. But notice, keep in mind, temperature does not increase uniformly, has not increased uniformly. It bounces around a little bit. And I'm going to um, draw on that point in the next slide. As Earth has warmed, sea level has risen. That's we, what we see here. We've measured sea level now with two entirely different and independent sorts of devices, little flotation gauges, which are set out in the ocean, and more recently from a monitoring of the height of the sea level directly using satellites. Um, and we know from both of those sets of measurements that sea level has risen about um, uh, 15, let's say 15 to 20 centimeters over the last uh, century, something in the range of about seven inches. That may not seem like a lot, but if you go out of one of the beaches on the Jersey coast right now, the typical conformation of the beach is such that if sea level rises one foot, you take away 100 feet horizontally. So, you know, do the math. Seven inches is quite a lot of land loss, which in some places has been uh, combated by, for instance, uh, spending a lot of money uh, trying to restore beaches. But over the long term, it's a losing battle. This is another thing we know with near certainty that the sea level has risen over this period. The reason it's risen is, is threefold. Number one, mountain glaciers are melting 
in most locations. Number two, water, like most fluids, is going to expand when you heat it. So even if no more water went into the ocean, its volume would expand as it's heated. And thirdly, the peripheries of the two great ice sheets that are remaining in Greenland and Antarctica, in a lot of, a lot of their periphery seems to be losing ice faster than ice is being gained at the center of the ice sheet. And that is also contributing to sea level rise. The general retreat of snow lines in the northern hemisphere is seen in this graph, which shows that since data was uh, kept in the earlier part of the last century, there's been a retreat in where the snow line sits at any particular time of year in the winter. But now to go back to a point I made before, you hear uh, reports that, well, last year was warmer than this year, so there can't be global warming, or five years ago it was warmer than last year, so there can't be global warming, or there hasn't been much significant warming or any significant warming over the last 10 years. But you have to remember that the climate jumps around naturally, so that in any one short period, like a year or a few years, it's possible for the Earth to be temporarily cooler than it was in the previous year. And saying that, uh, you know, because this year uh, is the, the last few years have been cooler than a few years before. Therefore, there's no global warming trend. Is kind of like uh, coming into uh, after a warm April, having a cool May, predicting that therefore there's going to be no summer. It doesn't make any sense. And one way we can see that is that at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, which is three miles away from here, it's a NOAA facility closely linked to Princeton. Uh, they have uh, large uh, Big computers which run big models and simulate what future climate can look like. When a, a bunch of those simulations is represented here, uh, the, the gray band is a, uh, a set of runs, a few hundred of them, I think, which are different projections of what future climate can be, all under the same assumptions about what future greenhouse gas levels will be, but differing by little small features, little uncertainties in where we, how we think the atmosphere behaves. And because the atmosphere is a chaotic system, that causes the prediction of future climate to bounce around. So I've just highlighted one out of several hundred uh, uh, simulations in this bundle. Uh, I could have highlighted a bunch of others. I highlighted this one because it shows a nice dip in Earth's temperature between the period of about 2010 to 2020. That could happen. It could be that the next decade actual, actually will be a little cooler than the previous decade, or by the end of it, it will be cooler than it was at the start of the decade. But it doesn't change the fact that the long-term trend is up. This little bouncing around is now small compared to the amount of warming that's already occurred since about 1900. And this bouncing around will get smaller and smaller and less and less important in a scientific sense over the coming century. Of course, in a political sense, one could ask, what are the chances of getting uh, Washington to deal with this problem if, we, if, they find them, if our leaders find themselves over here on the curve? It's an interesting question to ask. Um, to get a little more detail on what's driving these changes, it's mostly that uh, the buildup in greenhouse gases is happening, uh, by and large, due to a, um, two underlying factors, continued uh, economic growth and continued uh, dependence on that economic and population growth, and continued dependence of that uh, economic growth on the combustion of fossil fuels, and in particular, two sectors of two industrial sectors which are leading the way are electrification. The more all these laptops, 
that you have, all the appliances, uh, the electrification that is expected to come to the um, uh, transportation sector, all that drives up the need for electric power plants as long as they're burning mostly coal and to a lesser extent natural gas and to a minor extent now in this country anyway oil. Uh, they will drive up greenhouse gas emissions and road transportation uh, at the current time, of course, is based on petroleum-derived uh, fuels, and those are fossil fuels, and that is driving up emissions fast as well. Um, now, to do a quick switch and, talk, and look to the future from the past, uh, as I said before, we have uh, computer models which have large uncertainties in them, which we nevertheless use to project the future simply because we need some sort of guide. But there are two main uncertainties when you try to project the future of Earth's climate. One is we don't have, we have, well, I don't, I won't, let me put it in the positive. We have only the vaguest idea of what future greenhouse gas emissions are going to look like. If we had asked, what we're trying to do is essentially ask someone living in 2010 to project what the population, what the GDP, and what the energy use patterns and technologies for the world are going to be in 100 years. And that's a fool's errand in some sense. If you ask, what, had, what if we had done the same exercise in 1950 for the year 2010, or in 1900 for the year 2000, you wouldn't have gotten very good results. And so uh, in the, as a recognition of the uh, humility that one has to exercise in, in doing such a projection, the scientists give a very, very wide range of possible greenhouse gas emissions over the next 100 years. Here's 2,000, here's 2,100. There's a very wide range of possibilities. You don't have to worry about the units. So that's uncertainty number one. Uncertainty number two arises because we don't know as much about Earth's climate as we'd like to. If you put carbon dioxide or any other greenhouse gas in the atmosphere and it starts warming the Earth, that's not the only thing that happens. After the Earth warms a little, uh, the ocean surface is a little warmer. Ocean, the ocean surface, as it warms, will uh, yield more water vapor into the atmosphere. If you warm the ocean surface, you're going to get more evaporation. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas. So that extra evaporation causes an additional warming of the climate. That's called a positive feedback. There are also negative feedbacks in the system, which can cause dampening of the warming effect. For instance, all that water vapor in the atmosphere eventually condenses into clouds. Clouds can have two different effects on the, on the uh, climate of the Earth. Some clouds, very high clouds, cirrus clouds, trap heat, much as the greenhouse gases do. Other clouds, low clouds near the surface, um, they tend to have light tops. If you look at them from an airplane, you'll see light reflected from the tops of those clouds. They have a cooling effect. It's, we do not have a good way, because we don't know the physics well enough, to, uh, to project, first of all, whether high clouds or low, low clouds are going to increase or decrease in one location or the other, and what the net effect on the climate will be. And recognizing that, 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 that uncertainty is sometimes summarized by saying that were carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere to double, we're not sure whether Earth's temperature would increase by something like 2 degrees or something like 4.5 degrees Celsius or something in the middle. And it makes a big difference. And when you combine those two kinds of uncertainties, 
uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change projects a range of possible warming for this century from the bottom of this bar, which represents a low sensitivity climate with low future emissions, to the top of this bar, which represents a high sensitivity climate, more at the four and a half degree for a doubling end, with high emissions. Or we could get anything in between. And when we, we really can't settle this uncertainty, and we won't be able to close it very fast. It hasn't closed very fast in the last few decades. If we came back in 10 years, I think I'd be showing you more or less the same graph. And what we can say is, half the uncertainty here about is due to the uncertainty in what emissions are. If we cut emissions substantially, we make it more and more likely to wind up in the lower end of these bars, somewhere like this. And then if you go further, and yes, so what's the difference? I think most of my colleagues would say a warming of in this sort of one to two degree range is manageable, particularly by rich countries like the United States. But a warming in this range, the three, four, five degree range, is progressively more and more difficult to handle and eventually becomes catastrophic in a number of ways. The details of that are a different talk. Let me, then you should ask the question, prove it. Why should we trust these models? How do we know we're headed in that direction? And there's a multifold uh, set of evidence which suggests that the models actually, in some way, are actually doing something right. Uh, this uh, diagram shows the black line in each of these patches is the observed thermometer measured temperature increase on each of these continents, South America, North America, et cetera, over the last 140 years, the same curve I showed you before. The pink smear is that same clump of computer simulations, only it's for a bunch of different computer models that use slightly different representations of the climate system. And it, it's the answer, to, it's the uh, output of those models when they are asked the question, what should the warming have been over the last 150 years, given the increase in greenhouse gases that we know occurred because we can measure it in the ice cores and in the atmosphere? And you notice that the pink smear overlaps in each case with the black curve. Now, it's not a perfect fit, but it's pretty good. This backward casting, hind casting, retro casting of the climate tells us, well, our models at least can project, back project what the climate should have done over the last 150 years, given what we know, at least on a continental basis, that's sort of a minimum you'd expect in order to trust the models to using them to project the future. The blue smear asks a slightly different question. It says, let's pretend there was, there was no greenhouse gas buildup over that same period. What's the projection look like? And you, you notice it looks particularly bad in the last 50 years. So we can reject the idea that um, the, let me put it this way, the, it, it, from the evidence we have from the models, it's consistent with the notion that the buildup of greenhouse gases did warm the climate as expected, and that the models are, in some sense, representing the physical system appropriately. Now, just as a final scientific point, without going into great detail about the impacts, several, uh, when, you, when you take the, strain, uh, the train of logic from greenhouse gas buildup to warming of the global climate, to climate changes in places like Princeton, New Jersey, you introduce greater and greater uncertainty as you go down the line. And it's really not possible to project 
local climate changes very well. So when we ask things like, well, what will this place look like in 50 or 100 years, we don't have a very clear picture. But broadly, you can make broad statements about what the kinds of changes that would occur that would affect the human system, the social system, and natural ecosystems. And here I've just tried to put them on a, on a, a graph. This shows Earth's temperature uh, compared to pre-industrial levels. So the scale here is about 3 quarters of a degree different than the terms I've been talking in. And why I haven't revised this graph to be consistent with the rest of the talk, I really don't know. But I'll do that some other time. Uh, this bar, the red bar, shows the region of warming above pre-industrial temperatures uh, in which we, which we think a risk start, the risks start to increase significantly, that one of the major ice sheets will really start to lose a lot of its ice and cause a very marked sea level in the order of a meter or more. So that, that would be a level of warming we'd like to avoid. This, uh, sort of the pinkish graph, uh, indicates uh, where we think the risk increases significantly, that the changes in the Earth's water cycle could affect precipitation and runoff and availability of water in places like Africa, India, parts of China, enough so that food productivity, uh, uh, in particular cereal grains, start to decrease significantly. That's, again, a level of warming one would like to avoid. And the black bar shows the area at which the risk starts to increase significantly. That is that a significant chunk of species, all species, about 20, 30, 20 to 30% of them, are believed to come at risk of eventual extinction. That's a very heavily caveated sentence, and I want to keep all the caveats in there. And it is because the risks seem to pile up somewhere in the range of two degrees above pre-industrial levels or uh, actually, yeah, two degrees above pre-industrial levels, which would be about here, or maybe two degrees above current levels, which is about here, that governments in the run-up to Copenhagen pro started proposing that a two-degree warming ought to guide future global policy on climate change, that, that this was a level of warming that we ought to work hard to avoid. And the question now is, is that really possible? What are the government's going to do about it. And I'm going to make a quick switch here and talk about policy rather than science. So that's the scientific basis, at least the highlights of it. So th what this curve shows is, this is the answer to the question, what would one have to do in terms of reducing emissions if one was going to avoid a two-degree warming above pre-industrial levels? This, these are a band of emissions for the whole globe, not just the United States and not just the developed countries. This is today. So this is the range of future emissions which will get us somewhere near that target. Emissions above this level, and we, if emissions occur above this level, we have less than a 50% chance, it is now believed, of meeting that target. If emissions are below this level, we have greater than an 80% chance of meeting the target. So our a good shot at the target lies somewhere in here. And I, I do, you could make up a, a many different graphs on this which have different probabilities. It doesn't matter. The, the key properties of this graph are twofold. Number one, the peak in global emissions, if you're going to meet this target, which is thought to denote the limit of dangerous warming, to use a lingo in the business, 
would mean that total global emissions of the greenhouse gases would have to turn around, peak and then start declining, somewhere in the decade of the 2020s. That's not just U.S. emissions. That's not just emissions of the U.S., EU, Japan. It's not just the ES, EU, U.S., Japan, and the former Soviet bloc. It's everybody. It includes India and China, for instance. Number two, if you're going to turn global emissions around there, you better start doing something over here. And that is what Copenhagen was about. It was about trying to get a group decision on how to control emissions in the next 10 years, which is this period. The understanding being that if we didn't do anything in this period, the chances of doing this were about zero. So now let's talk about Copenhagen. Oh, one more point about emissions. The blue are emissions from the industrial countries, the EU, the US, Japan, uh, the former Soviet countries. The red are emissions from the developing countries, India, China, Indonesia, Brazil, etc. You'll notice that somewhere in the current era that we now live, emissions from the developing countries are surpassing emissions from the industrialized countries. That means you cannot make that peak. You cannot solve this problem. Even if you pick a target of three degrees, for instance, you could not solve this problem unless you control the red emissions as well as the blue. And to talk about some of the political problems involved with that, to just sort of summarize them, China is now the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter, at least carbon dioxide. We don't have a good reckoning of their other greenhouse gases. It surpassed the US a few years ago. So maybe China has the same responsibility as the US? Well, this is per capita emissions. China is about a quarter of the level of the US. And if you look at a country like India, China's, uh, the US is about um, 10 or 15 times bigger per capita. So that's a political problem. How do you do the burden sharing? What's fair? Who does what? Do you worry more about who are going to be the big emitters in the future, or do you worry about historical responsibility? There is no good answer to that question. That's why a, a treaty negotiation is so difficult. Now, again, I want to get to this question, why do we need a treaty? Treaties, as I said before, are difficult to negotiate. Uh, in the United States, um, I don't know the last time a treaty was approved, ratified by the Senate. Maybe someone in the audience knows. NAFTA, the NAFTA was done, it was, uh, didn't, you know, that was fast track. I don't know if they needed 60 votes to do that. 67, you need 67 votes to ratify a treaty. Uh, Maybe. I have to go back and look it up. We, what is the purpose of a treaty? The main purpose is to alter or reframe the incentives that countries have to do something, to do the right thing, you might say. Why? Well, countries act in their own self-interest. The self-interest of some countries might now be defined as Climate change is threatening. We need to reduce the greenhouse gases. But for a country like China, their self-interest might be defined as economic growth. And we'll worry about the greenhouse gases 20 or 30 years from now. So to reframe incentives, to get everybody on the same page, you need carrots and you need sticks. And the effective treaties have both. A model that's often proposed in this context is the Montreal Protocol, which 
uh, was the device used to protect the ozone layer uh, from the gases that were causing ozone depletion and still are, but their levels are starting to decrease in the atmosphere because of an effective international regime. In that case, uh, the CARAT was a fund developed to assist developing countries uh, like China and India in their transition to non-ozone depleting chemicals for the uses, for uses in, as coolants. The sticks in that agreement are pretty nasty trade sanctions so that if China, for instance, had decided not to make the transition to the new chemicals, uh, we would not have been buying their refrigerators because the chemicals are used in their refrigerators. We would not have even been buying their television sets, even though the CFCs were not contained in television sets, but this, the circuit boards used to, that are in the television sets in the process of manufacture are cleaned with CFCs, and those probably would have been banned under uh, the protocol as well. So through a balancing of carrots and sticks, you can get some countries to view their national interests differently. Another, in the case of uh, the greenhouse gases, an important this uh, thing keeps moving every time I do this slideshow, and I never know why. Uh, this circle should be around emissions trading. Emissions trading, the, uh, the development of an emissions allowance market uh, to, um, to buy and sell credits or allowances for emissions reduction is an incentive for a country, for some countries, to participate in a global regime developed by a global treaty. Uh, because, say, a country like, uh, like, like Russia, uh, where, whose economy took a dive during the 1990s, uh, has a lot, uh, under the Kyoto Protocol, which I'll talk about in a minute, has a lot of reserve permits. It didn't emit as much as the, the treaty might have envisioned, and it can buy and sell those permits or sell those to other countries or other or companies who need to make their reductions and don't have a cheap way to do it. So a country like China might be enticed into the uh, international agreement on climate and international agreement on climate change if they had the opportunity to take advantage of the fact that they're reducing their greenhouse gas emissions to some extent or reducing them for business as usual. Anyway, they can get some. They can make some money selling the uh, allowances that they would would accrue in in uh, in the process. So that's that's an incentive also. And um, even if every country saw those carrots and sticks uh, to their advantage, and even if the carrots and sticks were developed outside a treaty framework, you would, you know, for instance, one country can slap trade sanctions on another without a treaty. You can do it. An international treaty would still be necessary because you have to have coordination. A system like emissions trading requires international rules. It, re it requires a system, say, analogous to the IMF, some, some bodies to set up rules of the road for trading the permits. And in fact, countries will want to, will want to know if we make reductions this year, is the United States going to do something similar? That kind of uniformization, homogenization, coordination can only be done really effectively in the context of the treaty. Aid, if we want to distribute aid to developing countries to help them to adapt to the effects of climate change, is best done in the context of a treaty that includes you know, a, a large number of nations. Coordination is critical. That's another reason you need a treaty. And finally, there's learning. Some treaties did nothing, essentially, except allow countries to share information, to monitor emissions in this case, for instance, together, coordinate the distribution of the information about emissions. It 
under, in many of these problems, particularly environmental problems, which have a lot of uncertainty, it's the learning over time which improves the likelihood of solving the problem. One thing that these treaties are not good for is influencing domestic politics. If a country does what the United States did with the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 and goes on out and sells a, uh, signs a treaty before creating the public constituency back home that would support that treaty, it's entirely unlikely the treaty will ever be ratified or implemented. Let me now go through a very quick history of the climate negotiations to show to this kind of a lead up where, where Copenhagen came from. So in 1991 is when the negotiations began, and as Beth said, 1992 saw the signature of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Again, Copenhagen was the 15th conference of the party to that, parties to that treaty. Uh, that agreement contained no binding uh, mandatory actions by countries, but simply asked the developed countries to aim at artful diplomatic language, aim at reducing their emissions back to 1990 levels by the year 2000. And it did highlight this key question that remains today. What are common but differentiated responsibilities common to developed and developing countries, but differentiated to developing countries not having to do the same things as the developed countries, which would result in a fair bargain? That's still the main problem we have. And then adaptation, it noted that reducing emissions to cope with global warming wasn't the only thing that needed to be done. Eventually, climate changes would be large enough to require adaptation. There needed to be some assistance for the poorest countries in the process. Now, at this time, uh, 18 years ago, the consequences of global warming, aside from the fact that Earth was warming and sea level were, was rising, were, there was nothing, there was no effects that had been noted. Things have changed a lot since then. There were certain uh, consequences already occurring in certain places that require ad adaptation measures. So this has become a very hot issue. Um, in 1995, the parties to the Framework Convention realized that because they had settled on this clever, artful language, aim at no country was actually doing anything to meet the obligations of the treaty. So at the first conference of the parties, when they convened at Berlin in 1995, countries decided they should negotiate a mandatory agreement. And that's what was eventually resulted in the Kyoto Protocol. And the Kyoto Protocol has several interesting features. Targets for reducing emissions on a mandatory basis with emissions by 2000 and emissions obligations delineated for the period 2008 to 2012, a period we're halfway in the middle, of, we're in the middle of right now. An emissions trading system, a, a, a fund called the Clean Development Mechanism and an adaptation fund to help developing countries develop not only ways to reduce their emissions, but to adapt to the inevitable effects of climate change and mechanisms to assure compliance effective treaties like the Montreal Protocol on protecting the ozone layer have mechanisms in them to assure that countries, that is penalties essentially, that countries will behave. And there is such a, a, a provision, although not a, complete, a very strong one, in the Kyoto Protocol. Um, the Kyoto Protocol was promising, except they forgot one thing. They forgot to get buy-in from the American public. And President uh, Clinton never sent it up to the Senate to consider ratification, and President Bush withdrew entirely in 2001. And there, the international discussion, and this is kind of a very US point of view, but it's mostly true, uh, lay fallow for seven years. There were certain developments, which I'll mention in a minute, 
But in, in some way, not much happened considering that seven years passed and there was an actual treaty in place. Until 2008, when President Bush, himself having come to the, the conclusion that the science was strong enough to act, but not wanting to act too much, as far as I can tell, set up something called, and, and by the way, realizing that a negotiation that involved now 192 countries was awkward, set up a new, um, a new institution, originally called the Major Emitters Forum. China didn't like that name since they were part of it. And they renamed it the Major Economies Forum, in which the biggest emitters, and there are now uh, counted, I, I can't always forget, 17, 18 of them, and there they are, would actually meet face to face and have a negotiation that looks like a real treaty negotiation and try to decide what their individual responsibilities would be for reducing emissions. Uh, and that development, uh, uh, President Bush frequently gets criticized for his attitude towards that issue, this issue, and some people at the time thought that this was merely a diversion to destroy the ongoing negotiation of 192 countries. But it turns out, whether we even planned it that way or not, that this is a, uh, actually a positive legacy on this issue of the Bush administration. They did create something there, uh, which now turns out to be a central element in the negotiation, assuming that progress is going to be made at some point or another. So moving into Copenhagen, and we, this will take you right up to Copenhagen, the grand issues that needed to be resolved were the following. The need for a treaty with, uh, uh, with the need for developed countries who had promised at Kyoto to actually start reducing their emissions in a, according to a binding agreement, but many of which did not. Some did. The UK did. Germany did. The Netherlands did. Denmark did. Um, there were a few other countries that did, but most notably the US did not, did not participate at all. The need for a definitive binding implemented emissions reductions by all significant developed country emitters. That was number one thing that was lacking running up to Copenhagen. Number two, a burden sharing agreement. How much would developed countries have to do? How much would developing countries have to do? And as a key part of that was the understanding that in some developing countries like Brazil, the way they were uh, exploiting their forests was a major source of greenhouse gas emissions, and it became a major political issue between the developed and developing countries. If you're asking us to reduce our fossil fuel emissions, what are you going to do about your forests? The flip side of that was, you cut and burned your forests 150 years ago, leave us alone. Um, the third issue was credible commitments for financial support. The developed countries have made promises for, you know, the promise of 0.7% of their GDPs for foreign aid has been made many times and honored entirely in the breach. The develop, developing countries, particularly the ones that are not emitting much, small ones, the poor ones, but that ha will have problems adapting to climate change, both because some of the biggest impacts will happen in those countries and because they don't have the resources to adapt, we're looking for financial assistance in return for their cooperation in the negotiations. And finally, and very important at Copenhagen, a means to verify any commitments that might actually be made. How can we actually count how, many emi how emissions are reduced and whether countries are meeting their obligations. So I set out for myself 
the following analysis. I would like to say I set this out beforehand. I kind of did, but really I wrote this up afterwards. But what would be, uh, what I would consider the key issues, and so I could check off later about how much was done and how much wasn't done. Agreeing on a long-term target. Well, that was actually, as we'll see, that got done actually before in a meeting of the major emitters forum. Uh, it, it actually did get done, the two-degree target. Uh, Near-term emissions commitments. We'll see about that. Financial assistance to developing countries. Uh, reduction of emissions uh, uh, due to deforestation and forest degradation. That's called RED. It was one of the key proposals that arose at the meeting in Bali a couple of years ago, the, the, the uh, 13th Conference of the Parties, I think it was. Accounting and transparency and compliance. These are all related to the issue of will countries actually reduce emissions? Will you know it if they reduce emissions because you have some books that you can rely on? In other words, or will they try to game the books? And compliance, is there a legal regime in place? So if they don't want to reduce their emissions, they can actually be in some sense compelled to and a date to make a binding agreement, either at Copenhagen, it was hoped um, by some, I, I myself never expected it, that a binding agreement would be reached. And the alternative is, okay, if you're not going to agree on a binding agreement, can we set a date by which time we will agree to a binding agreement, either in a year or two? And we'll come back to this in a few minutes and see how that played out. Now, the thing about the climate negotiation is it's different than any other international negotiation. It's more like a jamboree. I don't know if you saw any of the pictures, but um, there are tens of thousands of people who attend these things. Most of them are not government representatives. There are as many press as there are government representatives, and as many people who are observers from the NGO world as there are government representatives. These are called the Engos, the Bingos, and the Ringos. Environmental NGOs, business NGOs, and research NGOs. And they're all there. And they, along with the governments themselves, set up booths in which they sort of show their wares related to the climate issue. So it's a, it is a great carnival or a great jamboree. And people, even the governments themselves, the US government had its, its cabinet secretaries coming through, the relevant ones like Steve Chu. Every, Every day there'd be a new one in a corner of the, in a, in a, uh, a booth style set of offices in the corner of the Great Hall where they would talk about US climate policy and the other governments would do the same things and Greenpeace would do the same thing and every other NGO would have its booth or its office and it's basically a terrific networking opportunity and a learning opportunity. And there's a reason it, it wound up that way and I'll tell it to you in a minute. But the thing in this case is there were 45,000 people accredited. The UN gave out 45,000 sets of credentials, but the hall only held 15,000. <laughs> now, this is obviously a disaster waiting to happen. I can fully understand, you know, issuing maybe 20,000 if there were 15,000 are allowed in the hall, because at any one time, you know, not everybody can stand to be there 24-7. But, you know, as Bob Cohen said, the UN had no, uh, the UN was in charge of the credentials. But I told them, the UN is in charge of the credentials. The, the uh, uh, Danish government was in charge of security. So he said, oh, of course, makes sense. The UN had no incentive, because they're not responsible for, responsible for security, to limit the number of credentials. So they just gave out, to keep everybody happy, they gave out as many as possible. 
And the Danish government had a hell of a time trying to keep order. And there were, of course, demonstrations, including some messy ones outside the hall. And even people who were credentialed sometimes, uh, you know, some of them never got into the hall. They showed up, and they spent all day waiting. And it was cold, and it was snowing, and eventually they gave up. Um, so there are a, a lot of people, thousands, who never got in there. Um, and into that mess parachuted the heads of state. Over 100 heads of state, including President Obama, showed up with the expectation of closing off the negotiation at the end. And instead, they, I don't know if you saw Obama make his closing speech. He, you know, he's usually completely cool. He, he, just is, he just looked like he had had enough. And he was angry at his staff for ever getting him involved with the climate issue. And I don't blame him. Um, so um, why are they that way? This is a little bit of a, um, of, of a, uh, a side point. But I think it's, un it's, imp it's interesting from an international relations point of view to understand how what should be a nice, tight, inside negotiation. You know, can you imagine an arms, a nuclear arms negotiation being handled like a jamboree? Can you imagine a trade negotiation? You know, they keep everybody out in the street. There are demonstrations, but they're not inside the hall. Who, whose brilliant idea was it to let uh, people in, people like me in my previous incarnation, into the hall? Well, there were good reasons for that. It's instructive. At the beginning of this issue as a global political issue in the early, well, late 1980s, the, the people who were interested in seeing something done about it, people, individuals, were a handful of NGOs and a handful of scientists. A few people in UN agencies, like Mustafa Tolba, who was head of UNEP, also wanted to see something done about it. Then there were a few governments, eventually Germany, the UK under Margaret Thatcher, and the Scandinavian governments were interested. But they had this big wet, dead weight of the US, Russia, Soviet Union at that time, and a few other big countries, Japan, that really weren't interested in the proposition of doing anything about greenhouse gases. So how do you change that equation? You create a venue where a lot of people will show up and demonstrate and draw the press. And the NGOs are very good at, at influencing the press and getting their attention. And you try to create something out of nothing, essentially. And it worked. Because the governments like the US, it really didn't want any part of this issue back in the late Reagan and early Bush Bond administrations, had to show up because the press was there and because the scientists were there saying it was a serious issue. So they showed up. And this whole thing then fed on itself. And eventually, the NGOs, the, the bingos, ringos, and engos, actually became influential in the negotiations because over time, they had been there longer than the government officials, and they knew more about the issue. And they became experts, and they became part of the delegation eventually in many cases. Because of course, as the governments changed, the governments incorporated some of the NGOs. Um, and in addition, we had the, so the uh, Association of Small Island States called AOSIS, and the other small developing countries. These are the countries that are going to be submerged in part by sea level rise. And these are the countries, for instance, some of the sub-Saharan Africa countries that can't deal with the changes in climate that can affect their food supplies, presumably. And they were kind of the moral conscious. So every time the industrialized countries said, eh, this is too complicated and expensive, they would start screaming. So that whole atmosphere generated a situation or a scenario where, um, which put pressure on the governments to act. And once all those people are in the room, it's very hard to get them out. And the, the only other 
uh, treaties that I know of, they're even vaguely like this, the International Whaling Commission negotiations and MARPOL, the Marine Pollution Negotiation. There are some similarities, but they're not on this scale. This is 10 times bigger than any other uh, such uh, jamboree. So, and it's worth noting that this time, though, the, uh, the N all these NGOs had much less access to the delegations. This is my perception that they did at, in the previous years. And the reason for that is, as far as I can tell, the government delegations were all scared out of their minds because they knew it was going to be difficult to reach an agreement, but they had their heads of state coming in. What were they going to do? They were negotiating a piece of paper that actually most of them probably knew was going to be superseded because their governments were probably talking directly to each other you know, somewhere else, not in Copenhagen. And this created a very odd atmosphere where the negotiation itself did not proceed as most of these negotiations have in the past, and it seemed to get stuck, and there seemed to be no way to get it off center. And the government, as I said, the representatives there, the negotiators, seemed like they didn't know what to do. Um, and I think the dynamic that caused this to happen was simply because it caused the stasis to happen. There was a, dis, a disjunction between the expectations of three critical blocks of countries. And that disjunction, which, could, which many of us foresaw before the negotiation began, uh, just kept this thing, Copenhagen, from living up to the expectations that, in particular, were held by the EU. As far as AOSIS and the small, the poor states, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, their hope, their timeline was, this problem should have been solved yesterday because the effects are going to start hitting me soon. As far as the EU was concerned, the EU was the only group that really was following down and implementing the Kyoto Protocol, which is going to expire in 2012. They needed a reboot of the international treaty starting in 2013. And in order to get that, they thought they needed an agreement as early as 20, the end of 2009, to get all the infrastructure in place. So they were very eager for, for Copenhagen to succeed. And they created very high expectations for Copenhagen in advance, which were entirely unrealistic. Uh, U.S. Congressional time scale was, table was different. The soonest that anybody envisioned any action in the U.S. Congress, that is a law actually being passed, there's a bill that's been passed out of the, if approved in the House, one reported out of committee in the Senate. At that time was June 2010. Of course, there's been an election in Massachusetts in the meantime, a lot of other water over the dam. June 2010 is not, there isn't going to be a climate bill by then. But at that point in last the summer and fall, it looked like a possibility. So the U.S. timetable certainly wasn't going to be ready. U.S. wasn't going to agree to anything until we had a law passed, and the law was not going to be passed on the, on the time scale which would allow the meeting at Copenhagen in December 2009 to uh, agree to anything much. So because of that disjunction in time scales, it was entirely unlikely that there would be success, even agreement between the EU and the U.S. And then the big developing countries like China, they seem to be on the verge of changing their positions on this issue. They are reevaluating their, what constitutes their, uh, their uh, national self-interest. And they are moving slowly towards actually agreeing to do stuff on this issue, particularly reducing emissions. But they're not quite there yet. So we have these four separate views, and that's not a recipe for reaching agreement, at least not at, by, on a deadline. And so when you put this all together, 
what actually did, so T, uh, Copenhagen did not succeed if success is defined in the European view of a binding agreement, a successor to the Kyoto Protocol, and a first bind and, and a binding step involving all countries to significantly reduce emissions. That didn't happen. But that doesn't mean it was a failure because some very important things happened. As I said, the countries agreed on the aspirational long-term target of about two degrees warming and an even sharper target, totally unrealistic, but for political reasons that they began a discussion of one and a half degrees um, was put on the table. Uh, there were, was no binding agreement on reducing near-term emissions. The emissions in that 10-year circle I showed on that graph which showed emissions needing to peak. There was no binding agreement, but countries did beforehand and in the weeks after agree to put down targets that they would adhere to domestically. In many cases, they said they weren't doing this due to anything due to greenhouse gases. But in the case of China, for instance, they're interested in reducing their emissions of greenhouse gases as a, as a byproduct of diversifying their energy system so it's not so coal dependent or that they're not so dependent on importing oil. They're interested in reducing air pollution. Reductions in greenhouse gases can be, occur asynchronously with air pollution reductions. So the, again, self-interest for a country like China is getting internally redefined gradually. So I put, uh, I put this in the middle. They didn't agree to binding emissions reductions, but I'll show you in a minute. Uh, about uh, 70 or so countries have put down a, a list of actions which would result in their reduction in greenhouse gases. They agreed to financial assistance to developing countries to help them adapt and help them mitigate their emissions. I put a bar here with an X sort of leaning toward failure. This is done, this is not done, simply because, again, the developed countries are not to be trusted. So whether this is another set of commitments which will never be honored, we don't know. And that's why I put this kind of mezzo-mezzo a representation. Accounting and transparency. This was a big argument between the US and China over the course of the negotiations. China, for reasons of not wanting to be bullied by other countries, the way they put it, essentially, for nationalist reasons, nationalistic reasons, didn't really want to agree to open their books and let a country like the US in to look at what their emissions are doing. On the other hand, um, and a lot of the developing countries, I think, felt that way. On the other hand, a country like the United States didn't want to be paying for a country like um, Brazil, for instance, to be reducing their emissions unless we were guaranteed that the emissions reductions were actually being made. So in a compromise was made, splitting up this accounting and transparency issue into two parts, and an agreement was essentially made that if a country is going to want another country to pay for its emissions reductions, it's going to have to open their books. So that was half a step forward, and I put that in the middle. Uh, there was no compliance provision agreed to, so I put that under not done. And um, there was no uh, binding agreements. I put that under not done. So it's kind of, it depends, half full, half empty, half full. So Copenhagen, uh, in my view, I'm an optimist for no particular reason. I just am optimistic. Uh, my view is that if you take away the unrealistic EU expectations that we opened with, that actually there was a significant step forward. And uh, in particular, the most important part of that, as I said, was that the developing countries, all co many countries, particularly developing countries, in fact, 55 countries representing 78% of global emissions, put down targets 
for what they will achieve over the next 10 years, including China, that puts down a pr pretty robust target of a 45% emissions reduction against, that's, I don't want to get into details here because it's late, but that's in the intensity of their emissions, emissions per unit GDP. Uh, these, all these targets are baseline to different dates. All of them are, some of them are in absolute emissions, some of them are below business as usual, some of them are in emissions intensity. Uh, the, the, it's a hodgepodge, but the point is that these countries actually agreed to do something. That has never happened before. India, China, Brazil, South Africa never wanted to talk about reducing their emissions. Now the discussion, which began 18 years ago at Rio, of what's common but differentiated responsibilities has finally been engaged. Um, the, that is under, what underlies that is the important political outcome, again, some credit to George Bush, the major economies forum, the uh, negotiation itself has split into fragments. On the one hand, a lot of the work about the U.S. negotiating with China about emissions reduction responsibility will be done not in the 192 country jamboree, but in the major economy forum. Other issue, uh, that's uh, one thing that happened. Another symptom of that fragmentation is that what used to be called the G77 plus China, the developing country bloc, which used to spend a lot of time throwing metaphorical bombs at the developed countries for not doing enough and not entertaining any discussion of what they would do, they have fallen apart with China entering the MEF and the group of 77 itself fragmenting with different countries uh, have, reading that they have different national interests. And the most encouraging aspect of that is that Brazil and South Africa have stepped forward as new leaders of the developing countries, replacing uh, the obdurate uh, actions by the oil producing states and replacing China and India to some extent. And this has been driven by the fact that Brazil now wants to talk about stopping deforestation. We're not sure how serious it is, but that's happened because there's a domestic constituency in Brazil that actually believes in protecting the forest and the Lula government counts those people among its own political constituencies, and that's reflected in what they're doing at the international stage. So they put down a very serious proposal for not only protecting their forests, but reducing their growth in fossil fuel use. Uh, on the other hand, Europe, which has been the leader uh, for, for ever since Kyoto in pushing for uh, international action on climate change, took a back seat. The Europeans made the mistake, maybe it's not a mistake, maybe it just was inevitable, of putting the, all their uh, marbles on the table by saying, we have to reach an agreement, it has to be binding, it has to be by December 2009. So nobody had anything to talk to them about. They had nothing to withhold and nothing to gain. They had everything to gain. Nothing left to lose because they'd, already, they'd put, to get, put a very tough target for themselves on the table. So they were, I won't say irrelevant, they were not a driver of the dynamics of the negotiation. And it's not clear when they'll become the driver again. And then the final political outcome was uh, as the, uh, uh, the split in the G77 and the developing countries was underscored by the fact that these heads of state parachuted in at the last 36 hours before the end of the negotiation throughout the text that their own negotiators had been working on because they hadn't gotten anywhere and developed, you know, pulled out a three-page document which became the Kyoto, uh, the Copenhagen Accord. And it wasn't, it doesn't have the force of a treaty. Countries can choose to associate themselves with it, but it doesn't have to be ratified, which from a U.S. point of view is a necessity 
because you're never going to get 67 votes. Never. Never is a long time. Not for a while. The most important political development, development that has yet to happen is a mandatory US program. Politics is peculiar in this country right now. I don't intend to make any projections about when this might be possible, if ever. But there's a way, there are ways that progress can be made even without it. And by the way, I, I don't want to go into detail now, but you may want to talk to Bob Cohane, who's written a paper with David Victor of uh, UC San Diego, on how a, a fragmented regime with no binding agreement and a lot of different venues, like the major economies forum, the multilateral banks, which are giving out funding for emissions reductions, uh, unilateral action by uh, sub-state level actors like the state of California, um, actions that can be taken against greenhouse gases under the ozone protecting Montreal Protocol. There's a lot of stuff going on to reduce, a lot of actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions even if there is no binding international treaty. And there's good precedent for some countries moving ahead with binding agreements even if other countries like the United States don't sign them, don't ratify them, and the law of the sea is the best example where the U.S. has actually implemented the laws of the sea effectively without ever ratifying the accord. So you can have parallel worlds moving in the same direction. Um, but we don't know how well this can work. We don't know whether the fragmentation will work, but we didn't, the single form didn't work very well either. All we know is that in the future, you don't want to just look at the jamboree to see what's going to happen. You want to look at the, the MEF, the jamboree, the multilateral development banks, and a lot you want to look at Sacramento and Albany. You want to look at a lot of other places. Um, but one thing that's lost, and that sounds you know, relatively OK, sure, it makes sense. But the thing that's lost if the jamboree goes away or isn't as important is can you imagine the major emitters meeting in the same context that, say, a global arms negotiation would be held, having any sense that they need to be transparent or have a moral conscience? That's what's evaporated as you make the, big, uh, the bigger 192 country negotiation less important. So to wrap this up, what do I see as the prospects? Well, the, really the success or not, the willingness of other countries to stay focused on this problem really still depends, even though we're not the biggest emitter anymore, on what the US Senate decides to do. If the US if, a bill can, if Obama can get a bill out of the U.S. Senate and uh, the U.S. begins a significant comprehensive mandatory emissions reduction program, then I think it will be easier to reach either eventually a binding accord or at least this system of parallel worlds moving forward um, sometime in the next few years. If the, but, you know, it, could, it may not happen. Who knows? We don't know. Uh, in the meantime, state and local action is happening that will put pressure on the Congress eventually because companies that are subject to different differential regulation, different states don't like that, and they're likely to move to go to Congress and ask for some kind of homogenization, i.e. federal legislation. And finally, there's litigation proceeding through several of the courts, which is either tort litigation or nuisance litigation, which event which is aimed at getting damages from emitters of the greenhouse gases like the big power companies, that also will put pressure eventually on the Congress. It's not a pretty way to solve a problem, but eventually the whole problem could wind up in the lap of the courts the way the tobacco issue did or the asbestos issue did. And then Congress essentially comes in and cleans up the mess afterwards. So some combination of these things will eventually bring US action, I'm convinced. 
I don't know when. Uh, in the medium term, beyond this year, there will be further conferences of the parties and further for, at Mexico City next uh, this, end of this year, Johannesburg afterwards, and there will be more meetings of the major emitters forum, and one can expect progress on issues like red, the reduction of emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, uh, because there's enough of a consensus among the countries about what ought to be done. And in the long term, the most important thing to remember is, again, this is, is a theme I keep going back to, is this issue of the evolution of, of a state's a country's view of its national self-interest. That is evolving. The reason China even comes to these negotiations with an open mind now is partly that they view the climate threat as part of a portfolio of things they need to worry about in the future. They've become convinced that climate change is a threat to their country. Maybe more telling, they also see opportunities for cornering the market in solar and renewable energy. They now are the world's largest producer of solar photovoltaic cells. They're the largest producer of wind turbines. They've decided to move forward on nuclear energy and on electric cars. So what's the best way they can create a market for themselves? It's by developing an agreement which would force other countries, essentially, to have to buy those technologies because they made commitments to emissions reductions. Uh, and finally, eventually, some countries that are making reductions will get frustrated and will either pay enough to other countries or threaten other countries with trade sanctions enough to start moving. You can't influence a big country like China that way. There are other countries that are more influenceable. More pessimistically, there'll never be a mandatory agreement. It'll, it'll uh, degenerate to what's called pledge and review in the international relations business where countries uh, make agreements in one year to cut their emissions and they show up the next year and merely explain why they didn't meet those obligations. Uh, because they have no need to comply. They can just keep talking endlessly, in other words. Um, uh, the, the notion of mandatory emissions reductions may be replaced by agreements to share technology information on renewable energy, but no environmental problem has ever been solved simply by encouraging new technologies. They require some kind of binding objectives, as far as our experience tells us. Uh, and then even if everybody agrees the problem ought to be solved, we could get into special interest quarrels. For instance, two business sectors that were interested in, that agreed that there should be US climate legislation recently pulled out of the coalition looking for climate legislation because they couldn't agree on how to slice the pie between the electric utilities and the natural gas providers. This very narrow political interest can sink a deal that everybody wants. That could happen too. And so the pessimistic view is we're looking at two degrees in the rearview mirror may not be the end of the world. We just don't ha know ha have a good view, a firm scientific understanding of how long we can be above two degrees without suffering damages that one really wouldn't want to deal with. And then there's the science wars that you've read about, I'm sure, in the newspaper or on the web. And you know, Obama himself had an interesting view on this, although he said it with respect to, respect to health care. And I'll read it. This is a complex issue. And the longer it is debated, the more skeptical people become. And I think he's got a point there. But I, because, as I said, I'm optimistic, I actually like to harken back to something John F. Kennedy said in 1961, which I think really is more representative of what will happen with the issue. You cannot expect this issue to be solved. They're not going to get together in a meeting and one day come home and say, we solved the problem. It's never going to happen. This is a long, slow struggle. So um, Kennedy said, um, we're, into it. we're involved in a twilight struggle, year in and year out, 
rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself, and I would add climate change. And that's the world we're in. It's, we're going to muddle through, and if we're lucky, we'll get through. And it's not going to be a clean-cut victory. Then again, we should never really uh, uh, been expecting one. Thank you. On the international level, the advantage, the only advantage um, that people have pointed to is that it's hard to imagine a globally rationalized carbon tax, which would essentially demand that every country price carbon-based fuels the same way. Nobody's ever really invented a credible system where that could happen. Emissions allowances are easier to deal with in that sense and can be traded among countries or among emitters. There are, you know, the, the tax versus uh, emissions cap and trade issue is a complex one. And there are, there are advantages which can be asserted for each. But at the international level, this one advantage has kept taxes really from being taken seriously. It's hard, well, it's hard to say because, yeah. Well, I mean, you're asking, you know, the uh, counterfactual, which is always a hard question to answer. So, because what would have happened? Some renewable energy would happen anyway, if you look for, so in these emissions projections I showed you at the beginning, there's an attempt by energy experts to sit down and figure out what the global economy would do with regard to re renewable energy anyway if there were no extra pressure for uh, climate policy. And the answers are all over the place. And some people assert that, well, the world's going to go green anyway, and we don't need explicit climate policy. I personally don't believe that. But there is a certain level of penetration of renewable energy. Uh, you want to look back. Mm -hmm. That's correct, except if you put hydro aside, which is really a different category. It's only a few percent. So all, what you might say that all the screm and drong about climate change for the last 20 years has arguably produced very little gain so far. That's certainly true. But looking forward, some of the curves seem to be at an inflection point. The penetration of wind is very fast right now. Why? Because it's at, the, at the margin, it's worth buying, basically. 
And you know, then you can go back to the complex of reasons how we got there. Some of it has to do with government policy. Some of it has to do with technology development. Some of it has to do with wanting to look green. It's complicated. But you know, if you project today's world forward without greenhouse policy, you don't get very far. But on the other hand, again, there are some reasons to be optimistic, policy aside. Yeah, on a very, yeah. Well, there are, there are several reasons why the industrial signature is in the carbon dioxide. I won't go into it now, but that's certain. There are several reasons, which I had on a slide, of why the pattern of warming is consistent with the greenhouse gas buildup and no natural cause. And we can talk about that later if you want. Uh, the sun and volcanoes, which are the two main other reasons have been ruled out, satellite observations do it. But you've asked a different question, really, which is over a very long time scale. Earth was 12 degrees Celsius warmer back around when dinosaurs were running around the Cretaceous. Uh, sea levels. Well, it, you can't really talk so much about sea level because the continents were in different positions. The last time we have good indication of sea level, where we have really good data, was the last interglacial period 125,000 years ago. I've done some work on that myself. Sea level was four to six meters higher. The world was about two degrees warmer. That's one reason why two degrees is the level we want to avoid. Now you ask, well, what are we worried if that could happen naturally? It can happen naturally, but the timescales for it happening are very, very slow. Tens of thousands of years. We could sit here today for four or 500 years, 1,000 years, 5,000 years, 10,000 years. We would still be pretty much within a degree or so in the same basic climate. The thing that's going to cause the big climate change is variations over the next century for sure, and well beyond that, is the buildup of the greenhouse gases. Those other natural variations are either very small or very slow. The only thing that happened fast in the climate record was at the end of an ice age or at the end of, end of a cold period, there can sometimes be a sudden warming. Okay, those things happen when the Earth was basically ice covered. When you're in the middle of an interglacial period like we are today, there's no evidence of rapid climate changes. And as far as we know, if we left the system alone and didn't emit greenhouse gases, the next ice age wouldn't be for somewhere between 20 and 50,000 years. We have a, a, we were able to do the Earth's orbital cycles well enough to know that. So left to its own devices, the system would bounce around a little bit, but not that much. Why don't you ask me afterwards and let somebody else answer? I think with regard to carbon dioxide, remote sensing will uh, make that argument irrelevant. We'll be able to. Within a few years, we'll be able to tell from satellites 
how much all the large point sources on the face of the Earth are emitting. But there are other gases which are harder to detect, harder to follow from space. So there'll always be a lower level issue we'll have to deal with. But the big, the most troubling part of the issue, you know, what are the Chinese emitting from their electric power plants? It's not going to be a subject of discussion in five years. And the only reason it's still being talked about today is a satellite which, which was supposed to start such a, putting such a system in place, uh, self-destructed. Otherwise, we'd already have the beginnings of such a system. It's a poll at GFDL. Yeah, yeah. There, there's nobody there. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, the, the big problem seems to obviously is political. Uh, and it, there's a lot of discouragement from what's been shown here. But uh, the U.S. public is, is becoming more and more burned out over this thing. It's pretty clear. Every time some scandal comes out or Russia comes out, there's Well, there are, there, the model for solving this problem that most people who follow it carry in their heads is a, is a substantial increase in the efficiency with which we use energy over the first half of this century, while new technologies which don't use fossil fuels at all or use them in a way which doesn't emit the gases to the atmosphere are gradually deployed after an appropriate period of research development and demonstration. And there are different views on what that ultimate uh, technology or technologies should be, probably will be a suite of them. And some of the candidates are uh, carbon capture and storage, capturing the emission from electric power plants, for instance, and burying them underground. Big question, what will it cost? Will they stay there? How long will they stay there? The emission. Solar power in various forms can be done. We know how to do it, but it's expensive. Will the price ever come down enough? Nuclear energy in various forms. Will we be able to solve the, the issues connected with the nuclear fuel cycle that cause problems in trying to implement it, and not just in the United States, but there is, the development of nuclear power has been slow, slower globally than any of the projections, because ultimately the questions of not just waste, but diversion of, of, of weapons-grade material are always there. And in the world we live in, with you know, fragmentation of nuclear capabilities, it's, you know, it's a concern. And again, cost is also an issue with nuclear power. So for instance, the Chinese, which are trying to implement it, if you look at the plan versus what's actually happened, it's a lot slower and it's a cost issue. So no one knows. So what you want, a sensible policy would be put in place the incentives to get the R&D going so that you can get R&D and then commercialization. Can you do that? What would be such a set of incentives? Well, there are two ways to do it. There's uh, subsidies is one way. And raising the price on carbon to make those um, 
approach is more competitive and to encourage entrepreneurs and inventors to look and develop better systems, that's another way. And that's essentially the world that Copenhagen would envision. It's a world where the price of carbon goes up gradually. So there's no magic bullet. Uh, if you, you know, said today we're going to insist that by 2030 the whole world, 2050 the whole world's going to use all nuclear power, say. It just wouldn't happen politically. Uh, you need a gradual, comprehensive system which deploys uh, incentives and disincentives. And the biggest one that people have, been, have thought about that's the most comprehensive and at the same time doesn't pretend we know what the right technology is, is a carbon price. That's what we're supposed to be getting. Uh, gee, do you understand the U.S. Senate these days? Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know. What I, I can tell you a few things. Number one, on climate change, the breakdown, the alignments are different than on, say, health care. So while getting the health care legislation through will be a political victory, it, in some way, and in some ways will sort of indicate that people maybe have to reconsider Duggan positions, it's also true that some Democrats are going to vote against any foreseeable climate bill, and some Republicans may well vote for it. And so the horse trading will be different. The, the outstanding example is Lindsey Graham, who seems to be trying to build out a sort of moderately conservative wing of the Republican Party. So far, there's only one member, as far as I can tell. <laughs> but but he's, he's working on it. And, um, you know, uh, who knows what the possibilities are? It's going to come down to real, you know, the, the sort of dirty deals that everybody complains about in healthcare. It's going to come down on climate. Lindsey Graham wants big subsidies for nuclear power. The uh, West Virginia, Virginia and Indiana want big subsidies for carbon capture and storage. Uh, the Northeast states want credit because their emissions are already low. It's going to be a huge amount of horse trading. It's, it's much bigger than health care, in a sense, and it's going to make that situation look easy, probably. Uh, how does the election influence what the outcome will be? Uh, it seems likely at this point that although the issue will come up in the, after health care and be dealt with through the summer, I don't think that the Senate will be done with the business before the election. What's the alignment going to be after the election? If I knew what the economy was going to look like, I could say a little bit about the political uh, chances of the election. I, I don't know. So it's interesting. It's an interesting period, uh, but the, and the outcome is just unclear. I, as again, in the long term, I think the combination of what's happening at the state level um, and what's happening in the courts virtually guarantees that someday, while I'm still alive, Congress will have to act. But I'm getting older. <laughs> If anybody has any questions you want to come up, I'll hang around for a few minutes. <laughs>